All right, we don't have any particular text verse tonight, so just stay tuned and you might want to note a few verses that we go through tonight. Tomorrow night will be Phil Henry's Power Gospel Night, and I know he's been working very hard on presenting at least four more of those to go into wide circulation. So if you don't come for the doctrine, come for the shirts, because he's, he's having some special shirts shipped in from someplace, Hong Kong or someplace. Other. So believe me, it's when Brian speaks, it's a variety of hats. When Bill speaks, it's a variety of Welcome to <laughs> Welcome to theology class doing and living theology no tuition required I'm Trying to think what pastor brown wears that's unique each time Probably the suits Yeah shoes the shoes okay it's the shoes Yeah He can wear brown shoes with blue suits now So I like, we always go by those rules. Tonight, God, the giver of life, and I hope you see what I mean by the time we're done. Doing and living theology, part three, moment of silent preparation. Father, grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The psychological analogy, which we will speak of little by little as we go, is an imperfect analogy, as it must be. All analogies from creation to God must be imperfect. God, who is similar to no other being and who is entirely other than his creation. Therefore, there can only be imperfect analogies from his creation to him. We know from Jesus that God is a spirit. As such, he is a being. We do not say that God is a person. This is a little challenge for you. Because he is three persons in one being. That God is a triune being. Triune is an excellent word. Tri and yun, three and one. That God is a triune being is indicated throughout the scriptures. If we drop anchor in Ephesians, for example... God is called the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, a most significant descriptor of him, Ephesians 1.3. In Ephesians 1.2, the Apostle Paul extends this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The dispenser of grace is God. The giver of peace is God. The dispenser of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. The giver of peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, Greek word kurios, used very frequently of our Lord. Greek word kurios is equivalent to the Old Testament Yahweh. The Tetragrammaton usually represents Yahweh. Yahweh. Two vowel points added. He is equivalent to Yahweh 
as the God of Israel is called in the Old Testament scriptures, your translations often have Lord with all caps, L-O-R-D. The giver of peace, therefore, is the one who speaks peace to his people and thus transfers peace to his people. The one who speaks peace to his people is Yahweh, who is also called Adonai in the Greek text, Kurios. So Psalm 85, 8, we have this verse. Let me hear what Yahweh, also known as Adonai, will say. He will speak peace to his people and to his holy ones and let them not return to folly. For us, that would be if you're going to learn who God is and if you've received his peace, don't return to an inauthentic state, a state in which you're curved in on yourself. All of the New Testament consists of Yahweh speaking peace to his people. The entirety of the New Testament is Yahweh speaking peace to his people, to all people, and to all the creation which he pledges to make new with eternal life. As an example of this, in the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks peace to his people, the saints in Ephesus, and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1.13, we learn that the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus have been, quote, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit of promise, like the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and like the Lord Jesus Christ, may be called God. God is not a person. God is a being in whom there are three distinct persons. God is a spirit. Notice that Jesus did not say in John 4.24 to the woman in Sychar in Samaria, he did not say God is a person. He emphasized the word spirit saying pneuma first, P-N-E-U. M-A, pneuma, ho, theos. A spirit is God. God is a spirit. He emphasized pneuma. God as a being is a spirit, an uncreated divine spirit. Notice that Jesus did not say God is a person. He emphasized the word spirit, saying pneuma ha theos. God is a spirit. He would have confused the woman in Samaria had he said God is a person. If you've always thought God is a person, and you've no doubt thought it, I have, and no doubt have said it, God is a person. And we thought we were orthodox when we said it. If you've always thought God is a person, and now you see that God is a spirit in whom there are three persons, then two things just happen to you. First, you've undergone an intellectual conversion. Second, and by intellectual conversion, I mean you've undergone that by an insight that God is a spirit in whom there are three persons. Second, you have undergone a differentiation of consciousness, which means you think more precisely about God, where once you were conscious of God as a person, now you are conscious of God as a spirit in whom there are three distinct persons. You are already thinking differently about God, therefore. God 
as a spirit has become more intelligible to you. That's theology. You're doing it. Here is where the PA comes in. By that, I mean the psychological analogy, which won't receive clear definition until a few messages down. The psychological analogy is a kind of comparison. But it is a comparison of something that happens in creation with an incomparable creator. As such, it is imperfect. As all analogies from creation to creator are imperfect. Even human family, human marriage is an imperfect analogy about what's going on in God. God isn't as focused on the family as man is. God isn't as idolatrously focused on marriage as people are. He doesn't really care about marriage or family. How do you like that one? Except in as much as they reflect a fellowship of divine persons, divine and human persons, then they have value. That's one of those little snippets that people will quote and say, Rick Knapp said, God doesn't care about families. <laughs> Let them come. I don't care. Where once you were conscious, you see, theology isn't about focus on the family. It's focus on God, who is the father of all families, and the reason all families in heaven and earth exist. We live in a time when family is idolized, marriage is idolized, human relationships are idolized, and those are hidden idols in our culture. Among all imperfect analogies, and that's all we got until we see them, The psychological analogy is arguably the most perfect. To be a perfect analogy to God would be to be God. And so we could say that Jesus Christ is the perfect analogy to God because he is God. This is exactly what Colossians 1.15 says when it speaks of Jesus Christ, the Son of God's love, Colossians 1.13, as the image of God, ekon, the image of God. He's also spoken about of as that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the perfect image image of God because he is God. He is a co-equal person in the Godhead and Godhead is simply a word that refers to all that can be truly called divinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Godhead. It's a word that we're not familiar with and it's an unfortunate nebulous term, but I'll use it having to find it. So he, Jesus Christ, is a co-equal person in the Godhead that we call the triune God, TTG for abbreviation, if you happen to be a note taker. Triune, again, is an excellent adjective because it speaks of tri, three, in one, un. A perfect analogy to God the Father would have to be God, though not the Father. And Jesus said in John 14, 9, to give you a little hint, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He didn't say, I am the Father, but he did say, if you have seen me, if you have truly seen me and known me, you have seen and known the Father. This is also what the author of the anonymous epistle to the Hebrews says when he calls God's Son, the radiance, that's apogasma. You'll see these in print. I'll, instead of writing them out, I'll put these in print. 
And the first two are in print and available on the information table. So you have a theology class right at your beck and call. No tuition. If there are any offerings in the Tetelestai meetings, it's entirely voluntary and never obligatory. Ever obligatory. Never. So the anonymous epistle to the Hebrews calls God's son the radiance of his glory. God's glory wouldn't even be glory if it weren't for the radiance of it. The radiance of it is the essential nature of his glory. And so Jesus is the apogasma or the radiance. He goes on to say, the same author, that he is the exact representation. I will write this one up because it's got an English characteristic to it. Character, K-A-C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. Character, obviously, word we get into our English language. It is, he is the exact representation, character, of God's substantial nature, or the Father's hypostasios. So right here, if you stay with me, you won't be confused. We're confronted with what might appear to be a contradiction to what I said earlier. God, in Hebrews 1.1, is definitely referred to as an individual person because he, as a subject, has spoken to us in his son. Now, again, we seem to be contradicting our previous affirmation that God is not a person, but a spirit, a being in whom there are three persons. But God, Hebrews 1.1, who has spoken finally and definitively in his son, Hebrews 1.2, refers to the specific person of the Godhead who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father has spoken in his son. So therefore, if you've heard the son, you've heard the father. Speaking in the Son. So again, we seem to be contradicting our previous affirmation that God is not a person but a spirit, a being in whom there are three persons. But God in Hebrews 1 1, who has spoken in his Son, refers to the specific person of the Godhead who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a meshing there of Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 1. Consequently, though we cannot refer to the triune God per se as a person, we can refer to God the Father as a distinct person. Moreover, we can refer to his son as a distinct person. Who is not the Father, but who is God? We can refer to God as a person if we say, God the Father is a person. Or if we say, God the Son is a person. We can say, God the Father and God the Son are two persons in the triune God, the being called God. Right down the line from Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, we're told in Hebrews 1, 8 that the Lord Jesus is God. There we read of the Father calling his Son God. Wherever the Father says, this is my Son. Now, the New Testament is God speaking peace to his people. The New Testament is also the Father's announcement, this is my son. Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. So I can say the New Testament is God's announcement. This is my son. I can say the New Testament is in its entirety Yahweh speaking peace to his people. Because God has spoken in his son Jesus Christ and said peace. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, saying, peace, 
So whenever the father says, this is my son, he is always saying, this is my divine son. Now, a person is a subject in a spiritual nature. By definition, a person is a subject in a spiritual nature. So God, the father is a particular subject in the spiritual nature of the triune God, which is divinity or deity. God, the son is a subject in the spiritual nature of the triune God. The Holy Spirit, who's called by a number of names and titles, is a subject in the spiritual nature of the triune God, also known as the Godhead, Colossians 2.9, or all that can be properly called divinity or deity. Now, the Father most dramatically said, this is my son. When he raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 1 4. God the Father raised Jesus up from the dead by the Spirit of sanctification, by acting in the Holy Spirit. He speaks in his Son, he acts in his Holy Spirit. The Father spoke in his Son. The Father raised up Jesus from the dead by the Spirit of sanctification, also known as, a.k.a., the Holy Spirit, who is also called the glory of the Father in Romans 6.4. Compare Romans 1.4 with 6.4. He was raised up by the Spirit of sanctification, and God raised him up. He was raised up by the glory of the Father. Therefore, the Spirit of sanctification, the Holy Spirit, is the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory. Three persons, one God. The Father spoke in his Son. And that's all he needs to say. It's all he needs to say to me. It's all he needs to say. Jesus. The Father spoke in his Son. The Father acted in the Holy Spirit. Like God the Son and like God the Father, God the Holy Spirit may rightly be called a person and may rightly be called God. Not because the triune God is a person, but because the Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is God. A real monkey wrench gets thrown into the machinery here when you start calling God the universe, which only reveals that no intellectual conversion has happened in the one who refers to God as the universe. There's a distinction that must be made between the universe, which is creation, and the incomparable God, who is the creator of the creation. That's how far people have gone by idolizing the planet, idolizing themselves, idolizing their choice to be whatever gender they want to be. I don't know how we're going to translate in the beginning God made them male and female. I don't know what we're going to do in the resurrection when there is male and female. I guess the other 66 genders are out. I don't know. I just... Just... In, in terms of the present culture, I'm just a confused, I was going to say old man. I'm just a confused young man. In terms of theology, I'm not confused at all. I'm pressing on because God is beyond. So we have to keep pressing beyond if we're going to know him. So. Now, in doing theology, we must understand that we're beginning even now to rightly think about God. But just by thinking rightly about God, we are not knowing God. Only God can make himself known by revelation. That's why I pray, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. 
Theology can help you think rightly about God. And it can even open you up to know him. But if you're going to know him, that's up to him. And believe me, he wants you to know him. God is always beyond. He's always beyond what we can ask or think or imagine. He's always acting there beyond what we could ask or think or imagine. So we must keep going beyond in our quest to know God. Now let's consider the notion of life and capitalize it if you want. Life. And this is a new gear, but it's, this is extremely important. In John's gospel, Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. There is coming an hour, and the hour is also now. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. I ask why. Because the voice of the Son of God is the command, live. The dead live by the command of the Son of God. And here's a new one for you. The dead have no choice in the matter. We were dead in sins and made alive with Christ's life. Ephesians 2.5. We had no choice in the matter. The fetus in the womb has no choice in the matter. It will be born. If the parent follows God's will. Have to say that now. We live in a culture where the woman's body. Is an idol. And so the fetus she carries is just a part of her body. Idolatry. Not so hidden. Not so hidden. Idolaters always kill their children, so that's an idolatry. Idolatry. And thank God for forgiveness in Christ Jesus. God has forgiven us. Consider the notion of life again. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said, there is coming an hour, and the hour is also now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. Please notice that those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. He is speaking of those who are dead and who hear his voice, and that they who hear will live, and that means with life out of death. Clearly, if they're dead, then the life they receive is life out of death. And that's life that has conquered death. It's life that comes to a person who hears the voice of the Son of God, period. Now, this was faintly illustrated in the case of Jesus' friend Lazarus from Bethany. Only spoken of in John's gospel. A different circle of friends there, including the beloved disciple who was tighter with the Lord than the twelve. Lazarus. He had died physically. He was dead for four days and entombed. He heard the voice of Jesus say, come out here, Lazarus. And he arose from death into life. The hour is even now, Jesus said. Now I say that this is but a faint illustration of what Jesus was saying in John 5.25. Because Lazarus on that occasion was not made to live with death conquering bodily life. His resurrection, we say that in quotes, was but an analogy and a faint one, an imperfect one. To the resurrection of the crucified and dead body of Jesus, who by virtue of his resurrection lived and lives with a death conquering life which can never die again.
The religious people wanted to kill. They put a hit out on Lazarus because of the testimony of his resurrection. And Lazarus was a little afraid because he could die again. Jesus cannot die again. And that's the resurrection that we all look forward to for ourselves. Another illustration of this after Lazarus is the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus in Syria, in the words of Ananias the Damascene, who interpreted this event, Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus at the time, the bitter enemy of God, was appointed, said Ananias, not only to see the righteous one, cross-pollination with Romans, but also to hear the sound of his voice. Guess what happened to Saul, the bitter enemy, and through no choice of his own. He heard the voice of the Son of God, and he who is dead in sins lived. How's that for a judgment? Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, who's always named Paul. His name was Paul, given to him at his birth as a Roman citizen. Saul, as a Hebrew of Hebrews. It wasn't that he changed his name to Paul. He just went by Paul after the conversion of Sergius Paulus in Acts 13. Saul of Tarsus, whose whole raison d'etre had been to destroy the people of Jesus as a dangerous cult, heard the voice of the Son of God, Jesus the Nazarene, and lived. Not in the sense of immediate bodily resurrection, which he anticipates through all his epistles, He didn't begin to live at that moment in the sense of a bodily resurrection. But he did begin to live at that moment as one who was formerly a child of wrath. A child motivated by anger and wrath. Because the law can do nothing but instigate anger. Romans 4.15, Ephesians 2.3. A child of wrath and dead in transgressions. Ephesians 2.5. While he was dead in sins, Paul was made alive with Christ Jesus. Right there on the outskirts of Damascus. Unlike Lazarus, Paul did not formally die physically and come to life at the hearing of the voice of the Son of God. But like Lazarus, Paul was made alive out of death. Like Lazarus... Paul would have to wait to receive the body of glory in which he would never die bodily again. Unlike Lazarus' case, who was raised out of physical death as an imperfect analogy of the future glorious resurrection, Saul, a.k.a. Paul, was raised out of death in sins. In both cases, these men received life from the death or from the dead. And in both cases, these men will have the body of glory like Jesus' body, Philippians 3.20, in the last day when all humanity are raised to a sentence of acquittal and to bodily life, eternal life, bodily, a death-conquering life. In Christ, all are destined for this. The point for DLT, not BLT, Wow, that sounds good. No, DLT, doing and living theology, is that Jesus, the Son of God, like the Father, gives eternal life. Title of tonight, God the giver of life. As he, like the Father, dispenses grace and gives peace. He gives peace, he says in John 14, 27, not as the world gives it. In order to give a peace that is not as the world gives it, you have to be from out of the world, outside of the world and otherworldly, and therefore divine in this case. He is God. As the Christ, the Son of Man, he came into the world from outside it, And he wills us to live outside of ourselves in him. In this world, but not of it. That's the life that he wills for us. It's not just life 
that is venerated and worshipped as an idol in our culture. It is life from God that is a life out of death. And that's the Christian life. It's not a life that conforms to a set of rules. It's the life of God, the life of Christ, mobilizing us. It's not just thinking rightly. It's having the mind of Christ. Welcome to doing theology with a view to living it. The person of God, the son, God only begotten, as one translation calls him in John 118, gives eternal life through the hearing of his voice. John 526 goes further there. Jesus says, for just as the father has life, capital L I F E in himself, This is a new concept, life-in-himself, life in himself. One word we could say, one concept. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he has given the Son to have life in himself. And that's through the eternal begetting, which is down the line. Only one who has life in himself has eternal life to give. Only one who has life in himself, I capitalize life and himself, can rightly be called God. The person of the Father can be called God because he has life in himself. That means not as a bequest, Or as a gift, but as his own essence and substance, his life. Only God can give this life to those without life in themselves. Which is not only everybody, but everything. The person we call God the Father has life in himself. And he has given the Son to have life in himself. That's through an eternal begetting, which we'll get to down the line. To have life in oneself, capital O-N-E-S-E-L-F, is to have the power to bestow that life. To give that life to those who do not have it in and of themselves. This is the essence of grace, capital G-R-A-C-E. The essence of grace is to give life to those with no life in themselves and who are therefore subject to death. And that's what justification is. It's called a justification of life. What went wrong? Death. Setting right is giving life where death once reigned. That's justification, cross-pollination, our series on Wednesday, uh, Sundays. Now this is again where the PA comes in, the psychological analogy. God is said to have begotten his divine son. In John 1.14, the word who became flesh is also the only begotten son of God. By this is meant that the only begotten son is the divine son. The only begotten son is distinguished by infinity from the many who are called the sons of God. In that those called the sons of God are those who hear the voice of the son and live. And not those who have life in themselves. They are the sons of God by adoption, and by the spirit of adoption that we've looked at in Romans. The distinction of being called the only begotten, again, I'll write that one up here, monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-A-T-A-E-S, monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, A-T-A-S, 
monogenes. The distinction of being called the only begotten or monogenes son of God belongs only to a person who is uncreated and divine and who has the right to be called God. In the same way, any person or persons who have life in themselves may properly be called God. Jesus is called God. He has life in himself. In John 1.18, the scripture says, no human has ever seen God, that is, in his essence, as to his essence, at any time. But then it says, the only begotten son, the one who is at the father's side, meaning as his equal in name, being in essence, has made him known, made him known, made him known. Again, what does it mean to say the only begotten Son of God? The moniker or title or name is also deployed in John 3.16, in John 3.18, in 1 John 4.9. It is different from its use in Hebrews 11.17. That word monogenes appears there. According to that verse, Abraham, by faith, offered up Isaac. And by doing so, he was offering up his only begotten son, Monogenes. But Abraham had other sons. 13 or 14 years before Isaac was born through Sarah, Hagar bore him a son named Ishmael, whom Yahweh said would make a great nation. In Genesis 21, 18, and all the nations will hope. In Christ. So much for Ishmael's destiny. Later Abraham had many more sons through Keturah. After being coming a widower in Sarah's death. Abraham had other sons. So why was Isaac called Abraham's monogenes? For at least three reasons. First, Isaac was born through the supernatural action of God upon Sarah. Second, Isaac, not Ishmael, born of Hagar, nor Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, born of Keturah, Genesis 25, 1-2, but then you knew that was there. I know Tony did. He's going to speak on the sons of Keturah some night. Only Isaac was the one through whom, in terms of human genealogy, the Messiah would come. Third, Isaac was a type of Christ in many ways, including being offered as a sacrifice as the one in whom the promises of God were carried. Monogenes carries the sense, therefore, of unique Jesus Christ is unique, for sure. Among the persons of the Godhead, he's even unique. He is unique among all those that can be called deity or divinity, which is, again, that's tes, T-E-S, theotes, T-H. E-O-T-E-T-O-S. That's tes theotetos, Colossians 2.9. He is unique among the persons who can be called divinity. When we say that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, we are saying in one breath that he is unique among the persons of the triune God. For the Father is not begotten, but the begetter, and the Spirit is not begotten, but breathed. Now listen carefully. When we say that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, we're saying in one breath that he is unique among the persons of the triune God, and in the same breath that he's unique among all the members of the human race over the course of all of human history. We will also be saying that Jesus Christ, as unique among the persons of the triune God, and as unique among all human persons through his incarnations, his incarnation rather, has a universally saving 
significance. Not only for all humanity, but for all of creation. For he became flesh. That he is unique in his saving significance, however, this is important, this will cross-pollinate with justification on Sunday maybe, that he is unique in his saving significance, however, does not detract from the saving significance of the persons of the Father and the Spirit. They, too, have saving significance. Therefore, the being whom we call God, existent in three distinct persons, is said to give life to all. God, the triune God, gives life to all. That's 1 Timothy 6.13. This pertains to the giving of botanical life, plants, trees, etc., and biological life, animal, human, etc. But it also refers to eternal, capital L-I-F-E. He gives eternal life to all. In the botanical realm, the trees will clap their hands. In the human realm, all will be made alive in Christ. In the biological realm, even the animals will skip like the calves will skip freed from the stall. Plants with eternal life. Animals with eternal life. Your pets with eternal life. Yes, even mittens with eternal life. No doubt, that's a name. Humans with eternal life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Humans with eternal life. God's own life. The triune God gives eternal life to all, to all of creation and within all of creation, all of humanity. This is his great promise to sum up everything in Christ who gives life and who is life. The Holy Spirit gives this life as he is poured out on all flesh, Titus 3, 5, and 6, compared with Joel 2, 28. The Father gives life because he has life in himself to give. The son gives life because he too has life in himself to give. And it is a death conquering life. In John 10 30, Jesus said, I and the father are one. In fact, turn to John 10 because I think we can see this. In John 10 30, Jesus said, I and the father are one. He did not say we are one person, but we are one being, two persons. The Son and the Father are one. In the giving of eternal life is the point here. That each one has in himself and that together. In other words, they have in capital T-H-E-M-S-E-L-V-E-S. They have in themselves. So to gather the immediate context of this declaration by Jesus would be helpful. Therefore, John 10.27. This is HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible. 1027 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. Those to hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who? Jesus gives eternal life. He has life in himself and life to give. And they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Notice, my sheep hear my voice, compared with John 5.25. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Who are the sheep? All of the dead. Who are all of the dead? All humanity, dead in sins. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they who hear will live. My words are spirit. My words are life. John 6.63. All the human race are dead in sins. 
Therefore, they're all the sheep who hear his voice and follow him. Follow him? Does that mean they listen and obey? No, it means they follow him in resurrection. They can't help it. They, let's put parentheses, we, are all destined to hear the voice of the Son of God, and we're all destined to live. They, we, have no choice in the matter. And so life versus choice. They have no choice in the matter of coming to life. No infant has the choice in the matter of coming to life. No fetus has the choice. Neither did God grant the choice to parents whether the child should live or die. That's a product of idolatry. The product of idolatry. The product of idolatry in which people sacrifice their children. So, the dead live by the voice of command of the Son of God. The dead live by the voice of command of the Son of God. What does the Son of God say when he comes to the dead? Live! What do the dead do? Well, I don't know if I want to live, so... I believe in you, then can I live? I've done the commandments of God, then can I live? No, they live. When God came upon Israel, he uses the analogy in Ezekiel 16, 8 of coming upon a child that was aborted and cast aside and in the mother's blood on the side of the road. You know what God said to her? Live. And she lived. But she grew up. She became a teenager. She forgot who gave her life. She became a prostitute. She turned from God. So you think God will forget her? No, she shall be rebuilt again. You will be rebuilt again, O virgin Israel. That's grace. Jesus, the Christ, the only mediator between God and humankind, is the second representative man. The first representative man is Adam, who held the destiny of all the human race in death. Christ is the second representative man who holds the destiny of all the human race in life, including those lives that have been discarded before birth, at birth, after birth. They will live. And they will forgive. This same representative man, Christ, is also called the Lord from heaven. Moreover, as 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, he, speaking specifically of Jesus the Christ, he is a life-giving spirit. He is a person existent in a spiritual nature as God. The last points are almost the most important, so listen carefully. I pray that your attentiveness will be sustained and that you'll enjoy the forgiveness that you have no matter what you've done. So get off it and get on with forgiveness and life. Get off it. Get off your past. Get off the guilt. Stay away from it. Guilt is also an idolatry. Because people use it as the excuse to live a life curved inside themselves and to keep a life that they're destined to lose rather than lose that stupid life and gain one that's worth living outside of oneself in Christ, the otherworldly one. And this is all over. We will bend our knees to the Father who is the 
origin of all families in heaven and earth. And all families are to reflect that fellowship of persons. Sometimes we address something and make it hurt in order that it is healed. I kill and I make alive, God says. I hurt and I heal. I wound and I heal. If you've been wounded, it's with the view of healing because you've held something as a super unhealed wound underneath the surface of your life that has affected your life. So face it, you did. And face the healing, you did. You died to it, you're alive now. Nothing but forgiveness exists in the age to come. Nothing but love exists. When the kingdom comes, forgiveness comes. The kingdom doesn't come without forgiveness. There is no guilt, there is no fear, there is no past, there is no memory of the past, there is only forgiveness. And those whom you have wronged severely will embrace you with all the love of God. As you will embrace those who have wronged you with all the love of God. Such as the society of the resurrected. With life. All right. There goes the pastoral part. So listen carefully. Jesus Christ is a person. Existent in a spiritual nature as God. He is a person. Existent. In a spiritual nature. As a human being. One thing about God and human persons. We are all persons. The triune God are persons in a spiritual nature. So are we as humans. Humans are persons in a spiritual nature. So listen. Because of Jesus Christ who is a person existent in divine spiritual nature. And as an existent in a human spiritual nature. There is now a fellowship of human persons existent in a spiritual nature with divine persons existent in a spiritual nature. No human relationship of the kingdom of God exists without that relationship being a fellowship between both human and divine persons. Relationships that are merely between two human persons are bound to falter, even the deepest and most beloved of friendships. But friendships that last, marriages that last, relationships that last, are necessarily a fellowship of not only the two human persons or the ten human persons or the two hundred human persons, but they are of human persons with divine persons. And God is faithful who has called us into fellowship with his Son. The kingdom of God in resurrection will be the fellowship of bodily raised, bodily immortal, bodily incorruptible human beings with divine persons of the triune God. Thanks to the second person of the triune God who became flesh, who became sin, and whom God made to be righteousness for us and sanctification for us and the guarantee of the redemption of our bodies. So what are we doing in closing? We're doing a thing called systematics here. Systematics. I don't mean by systematics, plural, that I'm proposing a system or that we're proposing a system as one system of theology among many others or even as a system of theology called systematic theology that's distinct from others. By systematics, I mean that we are attempting to make God more intelligible. Not only by analogy, but also by exegesis of the scripture. Leaving it up to the life-giving spirit to grant spiritual understanding. Thank you, Father. Grant us that spiritual understanding. Because we know that, as you have said, the person may boast who knows and understands me, says Yahweh, the Lord. And as we've said earlier, and we'll pray, continue this prayer. Father, as we've said earlier, this is a theology class, which we believe that you have instituted here at Tetelestai 
church. And as such, according to your grace, there is no tuition. But we thank you for the free will privilege that we have, if motivated and if able, and if without taking away from our responsible debt and to our creditors and debtors, we offer this sacrifice to you as a willing one, as a freely given one, so that this class can indeed continue and so that the messages in it and the voice of the Son of God heard through it can come to many of the dead so that the dead can live.